I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Align Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Alexander, and today I had the privilege of speaking to one of my personal favorite authors, Frank Frenzich. In this episode, we will be chatting about the importance of high contrast living and what the heck that means, why dirt is actually quite healthy for us, and what we can learn from our dogs. Frank also has spent quite a bit of time in Africa traveling through with indigenous tribesmen and learning all sorts of fantastic information from those people. So we definitely dove into that because I was super, super curious to hear about his stories. Frank happens to be a pretty smart cookie. He graduated from Stanford University with a degree in human biology and neuroscience. He has over 30 years experience teaching uh, health education and performance training. He was named by Experience Life magazine as one of five visionaries leading the charge to better health and a healthier world. As a regular columnist for Paleo magazine, he's written several books, which one of which I just finished up, Exuberant Animal, I thought was fantastic. Um, as well, Change Your Body, Change the World, Stress Craft, Beautiful Practice, and Play as if Your Life Depends on It. Right, well, I try to take back, uh, people back to a, a real simple question. I said, what? why do you have a nervous system? And there's two kinds of learning, I think, that are vital. And this is why we have a nervous system. So if you perceive yourself to be of high rank in your troop, you're probably gonna have less stress and you'll probably do better. Sit back, enjoy. I would suggest for the sake of this conversation, pop your shoes off, go stand outside, get some sun, maybe download the episode and put your computer or your cell phone onto airplane mode. Frank and myself would both appreciate it. If you enjoy what we're doing here, subscribe, share, tell your friends, leave comments on iTunes, and I will continue bringing fantastic minds to your electronic device. So sit back, relax, and here we go. Thank you. Podcast. Hello, Frank. I can't hear you, man. I can hear you. Oh, I hear you now, brother. All right. So, Frank, for uh, listeners out there that may not know you yet, could you give us a, a, a bit of a preview of who you are, what you've done, what your books are about, and just your overall story? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm sort of a freelance scholar of the body and human health and human history, and I got involved in this back when I started martial art training, back when I was about 20 years old, and it just really turned me on. I was super excited to go to the dojo every night, and I, I just loved it. And at the time, I was a uh, undergraduate in human biology at Stanford, and I had a few professors that were really, really good with the idea of human evolution and telling me a lot about you know, where our body came from and some of the details of human history and the time scales involved, and I was just really intrigued and after after a while i became convinced that i had to go to africa to really study this up and that's what i did so i I made four journeys to africa and along the way i also found time to go to massage school i learned a lot about the body that way and and different cultures of health and uh, i trained with some functional athletic trainers and that was really exciting and uh 
now I'm putting it all together in, in the various books that I write. Awesome, man. Can you give us a little, I read Exuberant Animal. I thought it was a phenomenal book. I encourage anybody to go out there and check it out. Um, could you give us a, a bit of a, just a, like a, a preview of what you get into with, with your books? Yeah, it's all based on this idea of mismatch, which, um, you know, it, in universities, they call this the evolutionary discordance hypothesis, where uh, basically we have these ancient bodies, and our bodies are adapted to, to survive and thrive in an environment that really no longer exists. And we're, we're trying to use these old ancient bodies to live in this modern world. And this is the mismatch. And the idea is that that causes us a lot of unhappiness and a lot of disease as well. So I write essays about that, about the mismatch and about the predicament that we face with the modern human body. And I try and give context to what we're, what we're experiencing. You know, we have all these lifestyle diseases and we can approach those as, as you know, biochemical problems of the body. But I like to take a, a bigger picture to it. And uh, that's what the books are all about. So I, I prefer to, to, to put my mind in like the, the least nihilistic perspective possible. Are we totally, you know, screwed or is, so what can we do? <laughs> right. Well, you know, some people just throw up their hands and I, I don't think that that really is the way to go. It's true that this, this situation we find ourselves in is historically unprecedented. I mean, we've never faced anything like this before. If you go back in the paleo, most of our health challenges had to do with exposure and the, the raw physical elements that we faced and things like infant mortality. And then when we got into the age of agriculture, then it became mostly a matter of infectious disease and plagues and flus and smallpox and that sort of thing. And now we're looking at an age of human disease that is brand new. And we really don't know what to do about it. Most of our institutions and our thinking along this has yet to be worked out. And so this is, I think, where, where trainers come in as health leaders and help navigate this mismatch. And I, the, the phrase I hear from some people is that they say, we've got to integrate the old and the new. We have to find a way to go backwards and forwards at the same time. And I, I think that's the, that's the approach. Sure. And so, you know, one of my, my thoughts with this is you know, I, I think everything in our reality, our food, you know, the dirt that we're playing in, the relationships that we have, it's all processed in our bodies and our minds as, as information. And what we've done is we've become attached to this, this like chronic sanitation of everything, you know, and we're sterilizing our reality to a point that I think our, our bodies, you know, our immune system, we're, we're lacking this information, you know? So one of the things I encourage people to do is like, just, you know, get some dirt and play in it, you know, go out, get your feet in the dirt, you know, get your feet in the grass, stop thinking that we need to protect ourselves and live in these bubbles. The bubbles do not protect us. The bubbles end up paralyzing us. And do you have any thoughts right. on that? Yeah, yeah, this, this gets back to the hygiene hypothesis and the idea that we actually train the immune system by early exposure to, to antigens, to the dirt and to microbes of, of all sorts. And this was confirmed just this week. There was a major study out of some big university. I, I can't remember the one, but they, they realized 
they took two groups of young children and one they said no peanuts are allowed in the diet and they tracked that group and then the other one started with early exposure to peanuts and they found that the incidence of peanut allergies was much higher in the group that had no prior exposure so we start to think then of the immune system as something that's that's trainable through exposure and that exposure is vital to keeping us healthy mm. so absolutely so what would you suggest people do to to you know develop their exposure just get barefoot run outside like what what, what do you think sure um any any outdoor experience is bound to be valuable and it, it could be it could be almost anything from you know water skiing to mountain climbing to just walking in the park but i think for me i'm a big fan of um, of john muir and i thought that he was he had the right idea because he'd go on these long walks outdoors and he'd hike all over the western u.s and um, I think that kind of thing, of course, playing in the dirt as children, I think that's absolutely vital. Um, you know, the other study that is often cited is that children who are raised on farms have much lower incidence of asthma than kids raised in the city. Hmm. So even, even having contact with animals, I think, is a good thing, too. Yeah. And then speaking of contact with animals, um, contact with people. You know, we, we, we end up, you know, alongside with it, with this, this linear reality, this, you know, perfect utopia that we're creating for ourselves. It's end up making us sick is disconnecting from human connection. You know, like we don't make eye contact anymore because if it's not a, a, a iPod, you know, which doesn't have a soul, you know, it's, it's can't look back at us. Right. It's like we, we've kind of lost our ability. I, mean, I shouldn't say we've lost our ability, but I definitely see it slipping. You know, that ability to make genuine contact with each other, to be comfortable with touching each other, to be comfortable with, you know, making eye contact with each other, to be comfortable with, with, with really expressing yourself around other people. You know, what, what are your thoughts with, with you, know, you call it social nourishment in your exuberant animal book? What are your thoughts on that? Right. It, it's, it's absolutely vital and it's really becoming endangered. Um, you know, one phrase I've, I've heard a couple of uh, health people talk about, they say networks aren't tribes. And I think that was really profound because what we're doing is we're creating big networks of all our Facebook friends and all our contact lists and everything else. And these networks are, they serve a purpose, I suppose, but they are not tribes. And tribes are the status quo. Tribes are the situation where you know everybody in your tribe and you interact with them face to face. And that's vital. It's, it's mediated by the body and it, it's vital for the flow of information in our bodies, particularly um, we have this oxytocin system. And that's a, that's a molecule, that's a hormone that has all these very beneficial effects in the body, um, including reducing stress. And this is the, the kind of effect that we get at Thanksgiving dinner when we're around family and friends and there's touching and food and all this warmth going on. And that's, that's vital. That's vital to who we are. And we're in danger of losing that because we're, we're, we're displacing all of that with our phones. Right. And one of the things that you had, had mentioned was, was getting outside and, you know, getting, you know, running through the woods or through the mountains. You know, I think that one of the really impactful things about that amongst, you know, uh, uh, separate from all the obvious, you know, grounding and all that, 
but it's just the the dynamic movement, you know, and and the the variable movement expressions that we end up achieving when we are out in the forest, you know, because a forest doesn't look like a box gym, you know, when you go to a gym, every handle feels the same, and you know the bars are all perfectly fit to your hands, and it's all you know, it's everything's ergonomically correct and flat, and the temperature is exactly this consistent, you know, and what that does to our body is that our body just gets bored. You know, I think that the more that exactly. we can, the more that we can go out and express ourselves, you know, in in the most dynamic, non-linear way possible, that has an impact on the brain. You know, that has an impact on our mind. That has an impact on every aspect of us. Do you do you have any tips or tools or tricks or like what's what is your approach to fitness? I mean, fitness is kind of a dirty word for for fairly decent reason. <laughs> you know, what is what is what is your what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, I try to take back, uh, people back to a, a real simple question. I said, "What? Why do you have a nervous system? What do you have a nervous system for?" And people kind of wonder. And the first answer that usually comes up, people say, "Well, I need to have a, re- a nervous system in order to regulate my body." Mm-hmm. And that sounds right. And that's the standard, you know, off-the-shelf answer that most people have. But there's also learning and there's two kinds of learning I think that are vital and this is why we have a nervous system we need to learn our habitat and we need to learn our tribe we we need to learn our two primary life support systems basically our habitat and our tribe and and our nervous system has been sculpted by you know thousands of generations of experience to be tuned to habitat and tribe so we are ideally suited for doing those two things and if we go to the gym or we practice monotonous sports with lots of repetitive experience then we're not really speaking to the nervous system as it was evolved so I think we're we're starting to take a new look at all of this, and it's really exciting. And what do you what do you what do you what do you specifically do for for you know movement practice? What is what is what is Frank Frensick's movement practice look like? <laughs> well, I'm really fortunate because I live in Central Washington, right up against the mountains, and I have trailheads that are only like five minutes from my house, so I can just get on my bike and go to the trailhead, and off I go, and. So everybody hikes, and that's no big deal in and of itself. But what I found myself doing is slowing down and paying more attention to the qualities and the textures around me and taking more of a a hunter view or a hunter-gatherer view of my experience. Sometimes it makes sense to go fast, and sometimes it's fun to go fast. But it's also really valuable to go slow or just find a place and sit and look at what's going on around you. I mean, hunter-gatherers would have spent a lot of time in camp just looking at habitat. Mm. And st- they, were stu- they were the original students of habitat. And you know, we're, we're well suited to do that. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me that I've, I've realized probably just in the last year or so, um, more impactfully at least, is, is the lack of depth perception that our society is being exposed to or not exposed to, I guess. You know, what is the impact on, on, on that lack of, of utilization of our eyes to their full capacity? Oh, that, that's a great question. And I think it's a, it's, 
going to be a topic for further research. And I don't know specifically what the effects are, but it stands to reason that if you, if you don't use your peripheral vision, you're, you're eliminating a big part of your visual system. And there's got to be downstream consequences to that, you know, specifically how that affects our cognition and our worldview. I don't really know, but, there's no getting around the idea now that most of us spend most of our days with our eyes forward, focused on a single point and looking at flashing lights. And that, that is only using a tiny fraction of our visual capability. So we can assume, I think it's safe to assume that there's going to be consequences to that. Yeah. One of the things that I do with clients, you know, oftentimes a trick that I'll do with people is just to give them an awareness of this, you know, and people can do this at home. Take a point across the room and really focus on that point, you know, the smallest little point that you can possibly focus on. And then notice, firstly, notice what happens to your physical structure when you do that. Notice what happens to your mind, you know, and your perception of things. And then walk towards that little tiny focal point, that little speck on the wall, and then just kind of observe, right? And then walk backwards, come back, 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 and then uh, do it again. But then now this time, I want you to take in the whole entire room. Take in, I want you to observe as far out into the periphery as you possibly can. I don't want you to focus on anything at all, right? Notice how you feel, Notice and then start walking forward and notice how your structure moves and what you'll what you'll what you'll see and as certain people depending upon how sensitive you are will notice more than others obviously, uh, but what what I will see immediately is their whole entire structure goes from being in that that forward head posture and the folded shoulders and the collapsed position that we end up you know so fantastically achieving on computers all day, you know we end up just perpetuating that pattern through that that focalization of that small point you know and i think that you know that there's more happening there than just you know what we see in the structure when the structure changes like that it's huge implications for everything else you know i think as well yeah. something that gets impacted with that is imagination you know and is one of the things that you right. mention right. in your book that i think is super cool and I've, I've, I've kind of been saying it to some people uh is muse it or lose it i hope you uh, don't mind me mm -hmm. borrowing mm -hmm. that <laughs> No, yeah. no. I, well, that's, that's one thing that every athlete knows about their body is you use it or it goes away. And um, we can assume it's so prevalent in the body that we can assume that every system in the body works that way to some extent. I mean, even the bones work that way. The immune system works that way. It, essentially, every part of the body works that way. So then that's the beauty of it. But, you know, your, your exercise there reminds me of another feature of our, of the mismatch and how perceptions have changed because you've got to remember that in an ancestral environment, that was a predator rich environment. So we were hunter gatherers to be sure we were hunting a lot, but we were also hunted gatherers and we were, we were a predator to be sure, but we were also a prey species. And, so to survive in that kind of environment, you, you move your head around and you use your peripheral vision and you're constantly scanning the environment in, in 360 degrees. So we've taken that away. We killed all the predators and now we, uh, we focus in one place and that's profoundly unnatural. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, we need to start, you know, creating. I don't. Mean, I don't think the Hunger Games is the right decision, but we need. We need to get that. We need to get the sense that like we have something to run from. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's yeah. a, it's a hu- it's a huge deal. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, people don't take that the wrong way. But just that's, I think that's a big thing with you know staying athletic. You know, is going beyond just what we end up doing is we end up becoming objective based with our fitness. You know, we end up thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. you know caloric intake and expenditure and you know how many reps we do and how much weight we do, and it's just so dull and vapid. You know, and what we need to do, one of a, a quote that I, I dug that I pulled out of your book is, um, the organism will not absorb the fruits of the task unless its powers of apprehension are kept fresh by romance. That is <laughs> Alfred North Whitehead. You know, and I think that that's, you know, in hunter-gathering, that might not be like, you know, getting hunted might not be so romantic. But uh, getting down into like the real passion and of, of expression and of movement you know when I, when I take people through various movement practices it's it's all about enjoying the experience of moving your body you know it's not about okay great we're you know we're gonna get we're gonna get up to 200 pounds or whatever that's that's nice and it's inspirational but if that's all you care about I don't I don't believe yeah. that it's that it's that it's sustainable you know if you can if you can just get into the the, the, the joy of movement, that's something that you can you can get into for the rest of your life, you know, and be smiling the whole time. You know, do you yeah. have any, th- any thoughts on that? Yes, another way to put all that is, you know, we hear a lot these days about exercise science, and that's great. Science is exciting and fun and, and worth doing, but we don't hear anybody talking about exercise humanity. Right. And that, I think, would open up a whole world of potential because now you start to talk about the totality of your experience, your mind, your body, your spirit all together. And you talk about story, you talk about history, you talk about art as it relates to the body. And now that opens up a whole new world. So maybe a little bit less exercise science and a little bit more exercise humanity. Sure. Which brings us to the most important question of the podcast, Frank, do you dance? Do I dance? I love it. I'm not a, um, I don't have a particular discipline. I don't have a form that I practice, but I love hippie dancing and, you know, around the campfire. And I especially love the African drums. So I'll get together with a group and we'll drum and whoever wants to dances. And I just, I love it. I mean, it's, um, the other thing about dancing, you got to realize, is that it's the oldest form of human movement yes. that wasn't directly involved in survival. Right. And it was our first, our original language. In all our gestures, mm-hmm. that's where our words came from, was from the body. So when we dance, we're doing more than just having fun. We're... Uh, we're telling stories too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. And then, do you have any specific stories from your time in Africa that were especially ridiculous? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was so it was so exciting on so many levels, and one story sticks with me. That when I went out with the Hadza Bushmen, they they hunted with bow and arrow and they used poison on the tips of the arrow. And at the time I didn't think much of it because 
I just assumed that they knew where to get the poison and they just put it on their arrow tips and away they go. But later on, I read a book by Elizabeth Marshall Thomas called The Old Way. And she actually grew up with the San Bushman in the Kalahari. Uh, this is back in the 1960s, I believe. And so there was still a lot of authentic hunting and gathering going on then. And she tells a story of how they get the poison. And it's fascinating because the poison comes from the larva of a particular insect. And that insect only produces larva during a certain season, certain time of year, at the base of a certain kind of bush. So you have to know all that. And then on top of that, you have to know how to prepare the larva and prepare the poison. And when I put all these pieces together, I realized, wow, it doesn't matter how fit I might happen to be. If I got in a time machine and went back to that period of time, I would not know any of that. And I would not be able to function the way they do because I am not part of that oral tradition. I wouldn't have the knowledge to do that kind of thing. So that really talks to the the totality of the hunter-gatherer experience. You know, it's like you've got to be in a tribe. The tribe has to have an oral tradition, and it extends back in time, and it's all connected to habitat. And that's what really struck me. Especially embarrassing moments in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) An embarrassing moment in Africa. Yeah, it's like, wow, I am, it doesn't matter how much I can squat. It doesn't matter how fast I can run. I, there's a lot I would have to know. Was was there anything, was there anything specific where it's like, wow, I am very, very different than these people. (laughs) Yeah, they, they, they tolerated our presence, you know, and they, they kind of laughed at us. Um, and it was, it was just remarkable the way they, they felt at home. They felt so at home in that environment and how I realized it, it would have taken me years to feel at home in that same environment. And, um, you know, I had all the advantages. I had a nice, nice pair of hiking boots you know, a hat and sunscreen and <laughs> vaccinations and everything else. <laughs> Even at that, it would have taken years. Yeah. And one of the things that you mention in your book is uh, you said, talk about the VIP versus the VUP or the very, very important person versus the very unrecognized person. Uh, you know, I think that's oh. a, it's a really interesting topic, which I'd love for to hear your perspectives on it. You know, but I think it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that we we think that it, it, in order to be considered an important person, you have to have this you know bank account or this type of car or you know, this job or whatever it is. You know, but then you and then it's and it, and it actually relates. You know, in in our society, wealthier, more affluent people are, are going to be healthier. You know, and and why that is, there's all sorts of potential reasons. I think a big part of it is just self value and self worth. You know, so I, I wonder, right. if, you know, when you go to these places where that artificial value system is, has not been created yet, you know, what, 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 what is that like in, in, in the places? And obviously Africa is, you know, pretty developed in certain places, but in the less developed areas, what was, what is the VIP versus the VUP status? What is that? Right. Well, I get a lot of this from uh, Robert Sapolsky's work out of, out of Stanford, and he's done a lot of work with baboons and stress hormones and, and rank in a, in a baboon troop. 
and what that tells us that that rank is important, but it's our perception of rank that makes all the difference. So if you, the predictor of disease is not just rank, but it's your perception of rank. So if you perceive yourself to be of high rank in your troop, you're probably going to have less stress and you'll probably do better overall. But if you perceive yourself to be low rank, you know, whatever the reality is, you're probably going to be under more stress and you're probably going to be more susceptible to lifestyle diseases. So just as throughout stress medicine, it always gets back to interpretation and perception. And that's where we can do some of our most powerful work. And, um, you know, it's how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves in relationship to the world. And that's something that you got to wonder about in, third world countries. It's like a lot of these people probably live in fairly, fairly good conditions and fairly healthy conditions until they were exposed to television and until they were exposed to the difference between them and the modern world. And now all of a sudden their perception of poverty and rank changed. And, you know, it was a mind body thing. Yeah. So. Another th- another thing that I, I harp on a lot when, in regards to the television is it, we've turned into a culture of of watchers. You know, we, we we're very comfortable with observing. We're masters of observation. You know, but when it comes to participation, you know, we're, we're starting to lose it. You know, and it's a slippery, slippery slope. You know, I, I do I do a, a break dancing class where it's like me and then a bunch of little kids. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, right. it's super, super fun, you know, and the, and the, and the poor parents, like there's a couple parents that come in and they sit and they watch for an hour and a half, yep. you know, they're sitting <laughs> down and we have like this fantastic, like, just like crunk music. Like we're getting down in there and the parents are sitting there while their kids are moving. You know, and it's just, yeah. it's like I, f- I fear for the children, you know, and I fear for just the, the race in general that through this, this observation lifestyle, we're missing our ability to participate. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Well, it's true, and it's it's kind of a behavioral disease in its own right. I mean, sedentary living is, you know, we we all know about the consequences of sedentary living, but the fact that people are sedentary in the first place, I mean, that that's that's a problem in and of itself. And it is widespread, and it, it's really disturbing. Um, kids need role models who move, and this is something they got in a paleo environment because every kid wanted to go out hunting with the elders. I mean, that was that was the goal. Is I want I want to go. I want to go on the hunt. And the, the elders were moving, and they would come back, and they'd rest, and then they would dance around the fire. So that's the norm. And what we're doing now is is an aberration. So, and so, so, so with that, what are specific tools? Because I know I know you do workshops and you know, you teach. What, what are specific tools that people can take home with them? Right. Well, one of the biggest I think is is getting over the the eyeball weight of other people and the okay. the public exposure. Somehow, we picked up this idea probably in high school that 
that it's not cool to move your body yeah. um, spontaneously or in public unless you're doing, you know, you're an athlete doing a sport. And that has severe consequences over the lifespan. So you, you've got to get over the inhibition and you've, in a sense, somebody put it this way, they said you've got to be willing to be weird. You've got to be willing to stand out in, you know, in a public setting and move your body. And that's something that I got over a long time ago. I don't care anymore what people think. And so I'll do, I'll be in the airport departure lounge waiting to get on a flight and I'll do some squats and lunges or whatever it is. And I don't care. <laughs> I don't think other people really should care either. I mean, you got to move. Sure. And then what is, so what, what is, what does a workshop look like? What do you, what do you, what's like, what's, what specifically do you do? Well, a, a typical exuberant animal experience is pretty well choreographed. We, um, we, and there's three parts. So we do meditation, we do movement, and we do presentations on, on these subjects. So I'll do a slideshow, we'll do a meditation, and we'll do some, some games, we'll do some fitness games or some solo movement, and I'll offer up uh, a wide range of movements that some are very playful, they're games, others are more based on dance or martial arts. And so it's, it's super fun. And we do team building stuff and then we, we bring it all back down to some meditation and then we talk some more. And so by the time people leave, they feel that they've, they've gotten some you know, intellectual content and a good physical experience too. And it's highly social. I mean, we usually try and have a party at the end of it so that people can actually talk to each other and it's really fun. Awesome, man. And so how I actually heard about your work was through Ido Portal. He had, men he had mentioned uh, the book Exuberant Animal. Right. So I, I went out and grabbed Exuberant Animal then. Um, and Ido is one of my inspirations for a lot of the work that I do. Do you have any inspirations that have kind of guided your work? Oh, a lot. Well, I mentioned Robert Sapolsky earlier on, and he's, he's not really a mover. He's more of a, he's more of an intellectual, but, um, in the realm of movement, I've, I've had some great martial art teachers in the world of athletic training. There's two names that I really like. One is Vern Gambetta, who is a, an athletic coach, functional trainer. And the other one is Gary Gray, who's a physical therapist, and he knows biomechanics inside and out. And those guys really got me going on, uh, on the functional path, if you will. Awesome. And that's great. Do you have any specific stories of you know, struggles that you went through in your physical body that uh, potentially kind of led you towards this path? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, well, when I was a little kid, I had a lot of allergy type symptoms that really held me back physically. And it wasn't until I got involved in swimming and water polo that, uh, that I really was able to keep up with my peers and it really transformed my body. Um, and that's kind of why I became a evangelist for exercise and that kind of thing. But, uh, I've also had a little bit of scoliosis in my spine and it just enough to give me some back pain. And that's something that I've had to, uh, really adjust over the years. And if, if I do things right, I'm, I'm totally pain free, but if I get sloppy, then, uh, then I have to pay the price. So, you know, you learn, you adjust. Is there any 
one healthcare misconception that you think is is uh, the most apparent to you out there right now? <laughs> um. Well, yeah, yeah. I would say that we have kind of a a hyper a hyperactive focus on on diet and exercise, and I think that we need to broaden our view of the human experience and that there's so much more. I, I think, you know, we've learned the basics, the fundamentals to eat real food and to move our bodies often. And that information is out there and it's pretty, it's pretty well a mature concept and we need to go further. I mean, we need to start uh, engaging with habitat and we need to start engaging with each other and that will round it out. That will give us a more complete picture. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to tag along with that, you know, I think that oftentimes we end up getting so caught up in one specific thing. And I see a lot of people, they end up martyring themselves for nutrition. You know, they're, eat, they're eating the perfect like kale sticks or whatever. And it's like, it's like, firstly, I love kale. It's fantastic. Everyone go eat kale. But, um, you know, if you, if you enjoy it, you know, that's the big thing. It's like finding that, that joy and that passion in everything that you're doing. When you're cooking food, dance. You know, that's going to impact the, 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 the structure of that food. You know, I think that and, and your digestion, your whole perception of it, that whole experience, we're creating these experiences, you know, based off of how we feel in our perceptions. You know, so I think that oftentimes kind of, like, you know, just what you're saying is we get so wrapped up in like these perfect panacea of cures for things. It's like, oh, OK, it's the sodium, you know, and then you do that. And oftentimes it is the sodium, you know, but it's, 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 it's generally bigger than that as well. You know, so I, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things that I, I see, I watch animals a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you mention in your book is, is dogs being kind of like, like uh, role models to humans. And, yes. you know, and it's, it's so fascinating watching a dog, you know, because they can go from 100% raw, you know, <laughs> flip it out because the mailman's at the door to complete total contentment, you know, back to their bacon bits and then like to sleep, boom, you know? And so that I think is something that humans were kind of stuck at, like call it what you will, 60%, you know, all the time, you know, we're not able to hit 95% because we've been running at 60% for the last three years, you know, it's it's like, what do you, what do you, what what are your thoughts on that? Like, what can we do to change that? Well, what you're describing there is, this failure to keep rhythm in our lives and this, this failure to create a high contrast lifestyle. So what I, you know, we're chronic, we're chronic in everything we do now and that's not good for our health. So what I tell people to do is, is try and find a way to sharpen your stress response. And by that, I mean, when you're working, work really hard and then get off it and stop and go to the other side of your stress experience. And that means calming way down and dialing way back and then sharpen the stress response again. So that that's what exercise, I think, when it's done properly, can really help us do. You're, we're training the autonomic nervous system to have some real good spikes and then to drop way back into relaxation and you know, the problem is being chronic and that doesn't serve anybody. Um, 
and you see that that's the biggest problem in corporate environments and it's funny in corporate wellness they have all these tips but it's it's pretty hard when you're in corporate environment it's you know wall-to-wall labor so that's what they do <laughs> what's what what is what is from your experience here what what's the the impact of that person that's that's stuck on 60% which 60% is just a total random number but you know that person that's stuck yeah, yeah. stuck in that in that place of like i am always kind of going <laughs> you know what happens well, right right um well a guy who's really good on this his name is tony schwartz he does a, a thing at the corporate level called the energy project and for him, it's all about managing your energy. And he makes the same point. He says, uh, you know, if you're stuck at 60% and your life is chronically engaged, then you're not going to perform very well. And you are going to, uh, your, your cognition and your physical performance are going to be compromised. So you're not going to perform as well. And then you're, you're not going to recover. So the athletic model here, I think, is really good. And you can... One solution, I think, is to pretend that you're a professional athlete. So when you get in into the game or into your training program, then just train really, really hard. And then when you're not training, rest really, really deep. Yeah. And that's, yeah. A, that's a hard thing to do in the modern world. It's really hard. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I think downregulation is one of the most we, – we just don't pay attention to it. You know, it's like coming down off the day. We, we've never really been taught that. You know, we, all we all we ever hear about is, you know, Red Bull, snap into a Slim Jim, like, go, go, go. You know, it's like, you know, it's like we, we, we train so vigilantly on how to get up. You know, we completely disregard the other half of the equation. You know, as we're as we're right. living throughout the day, I mean, our day right now as we're having this conversation, this is a catabolic conversation, meaning our bodies are breaking down. You know, the only way for us to come back from this day is to go to sleep well. You know, and that I yeah. think that is a you know a true sign of a, a really good athlete is that ability to fluctuate between both ends. You know, one of the things that I've, I find to be really impactful for people is getting into a really strong uh, self-care practice. You know, so it's not just all about how much weight can you lift, but also you know, can you take care of yourself? You know, so I'm curious, do you have any things that you do for specifically for self-care? Well, I, I do a lot of meditation. And for me, that's my evening thing. I mean, I get off the computer as early as I can, and I, uh, I'll meditate and alternate that with, with light body movement, stretching, yoga-ish type of movement, and then I'll go back to meditation and do several cycles of that. And that's a, that's a pretty typical feature of my evening. And it works out great for me, and I've been doing it long enough now where it's habitual. And I can't even imagine ending my day without doing something like that. So it's great. And then massage, um, depending on who I'm with, I'll work on them or they'll work on me. And that's, you know, everybody should have a massage table. I mean, it's not that much money, and it's a good thing to have no matter what. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you just park your park your worries and you know they'll be there tomorrow <laughs> they aren't going to go anywhere don't worry about them and uh, pick them up later yeah and and addition to that you don't necessarily need a massage table you just need a floor 
you know, massage table is nice because then it's like, cool, we have a massage table, let's use it. But, you know, you can just use your creativity and just get down on the floor and start start taking care of each other. You know, it's like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a part of that. The thing that we were, we were speaking of before is like we become kind of uncomfortable with with taking care of each other, with making eye contact, with making connection with each other, with playing, with 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 acting weird. You know, and being yeah. able to get back in is like, you know what? Like, it feels good to be taken care of, and it feels good to take care of people. You know, it goes both ways. Yeah. You know, so yeah. the, I think that we should be learning that at a very young age. You know, children should be taught in kindergarten how to take care of each other. You know, and we should be yeah. learning how to pick stuff up. You know, like how to functionally pick something up because that is therapeutic. You know, there's so many things that it's just like, it's such easy, simple, little decisions that we could do a little bit better that end up compounding and we become a, a more evolved race. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm curious, speaking of, of the race and the species and all that stuff, what are your thoughts on the evolution of our species in the next 50 years? What can we do to make our evolution be the best it possibly can be? Well, that's a tricky question because evolution always gets down to differential reproduction. You know, who's having the most successful offspring? That's what it means for you know generations of animals. And, now we've kind of changed the, the game a little bit because now it's very much about cultural transformation and cultural change. And of course, you know, some of the trends are really obvious, you know, the, the trends in technology, but the other one that people that I think is really ominous and not that many people are talking about is the gap between rich and poor, which is huge. But that also means that, in coming years, we're going to have people who are very health affluent and other people who are not. And the gap between the health rich and the health poor, I think, is going to become more pronounced. And that's going to, that's going to stress everybody out because we're going to have uh, what you might call health islands. And there's going to be pockets of people around the planet who are going to, be, who are going to live to 120. 20, 130 years, and they're going to be super fit throughout their whole lifespan, and they're going to have bionic implants and whatever else, and then they're, they're going to have other huge numbers of people who will lack even basic care. So somehow, we're going to have to train ourselves to navigate that disconnect as well. And so I don't want to take up too much of your time, so I just have a couple more questions. What? Um, sure. So kind of in summation, you know, one thing that you think everyone out there can do right now or today to, you know, better, better their evolution, what, what would it be? Well, be a good animal, be a better animal <laughs> and, and study the paleo and think about the paleo. I mean, the paleo has a lot to teach us and the paleo is a, a really powerful meme once we get past the, uh, you know, the focus on diet all the time. I, I think if we really imagine ourselves in nature and what our, our real primal needs are, then it's a real disruptive meme and it changes our view of what we're doing in the modern world. So I would say, you know, study human history and look at how other cultures live. That's, I think, really important. And then, you know, be willing to change how you live. 
that's that's probably the fundamental thing. I mean, we have as we get older, we we get mired in habit, and we need to be willing to continuously change our lives going forward, and especially now because we're we're very aware of the mismatch and the the challenges to our health. So yeah. Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. And you know, there's a quote that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up here. Uh, but the evolution of our species is dependent upon that of those that are willing to be different. That's, um, <laughs> I don't know who said that, but <laughs> and that's not how they said it, but that's now how I say it. And I think it's, it's, it's so, so poignant, you know, because it's the people that are stuck in that box and just replicating each other that uh, we're just going to keep on going down that that same sterile path, and our systems eventually, you know, they're going to implode. <laughs> you know, they can't take it forever. You know, so yeah, where, yeah. where where can people? Your work is so great, man. Where where can people find you? Where can people find your books? Where can just what's what's where do we find you? Well, all the usual places. I mean, go to the website exuberantanimal.com. That's easy, and then the books are on. Uh, on Amazon and you can just type in exuberant animal and you'll find the books. And, uh, so that, that's all easy. And I, I would put a shout out there. If people want to experience the training, I, I'm always looking for people to host workshops. So if you have a gym or you have a facility or you have a group of people and you're interested in this kind of training, then step up and organize it and bring me in and we can have, have a good time. Awesome, man. Thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you're awesome. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car and it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package i know you guys are going to love the website i know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it and i look forward to hearing your comments all right bye thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast if the information has been helpful please share and leave your comments in itunes aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile together we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world movement medicine